Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel Faith and Fortitude. Chapter 3 of Daniel is probably among, if not the most well-known part of Daniel, because uh, who does not know the story of the fiery furnace? Now, maybe you don't. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Uh, that's okay. But if you don't know the story, you need to know the story. It's awesome. Amazing story. Faith, fortitude. These guys are just something else. And I don't recall when I first learned this story. I was raised in church, and so this is one of the first things learned is probably a pre-K before I could ever read. And uh, because it's such an amazing story, teaches such an easy lesson, has great deep doctrine in it nonetheless, and uh, so, something definitely to uh, please everyone for sure. Faith and fortitude. A uh, 12-year-old girl recently in New York City was being hailed as, uh, for her bravery for a recent argument she had with a classmate. And the argument was whether uh, she would give him one of her chicken nuggets. And uh, she refused... Which, of course, if I, you know, if I buy a 10-piece, I'm, I'm going to eat all 10. I, if I'd have bought, or a 9-piece, whatever it is, 6-piece or whatever, if, if, I'd wanted, if I wanted less than that, I would have bought less than that. But that's what, whatever they come with, that's what I buy. Anyway, so this girl refused to give a chicken nugget and uh, brushed him off and turned to go into a um, subway station um, to get on the subway. This little boy follows her in there. This is a classmate, junior high classmate, pulls a gun on her puts it to her head. She slaps it away, says, no, you cannot have one of my chicken nuggets, and goes off. The reason why they know this happened, because it was all in surveillance. And uh, later on, the police arrest this kid for armed robbery, or attempted armed robbery, and the little girl is hailed as a, you know, a hero, hero of bravery. I'm just not sure. I mean, I love chicken nuggets, but I'm just not sure if... I'm thinking if you're going to point a gun at me, you're going to have to be welcome to my chicken nuggets. <laughs> if, you, if you just need them that bad... But uh, it, it begs a question, and certainly our topic today, our, our place where we are today in Daniel 3 begs a question. What are you willing to lay your life down for? What, what, what matters so much to you that you will not move from it no matter what? Well, like I said, that's a question or questions that are begged by the, by the place where we are here in, in Daniel 3. Uh, some young men who absolutely had some principles from which they would not budge. And we came off chapter 2 looking at the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's interpretation and how it takes us all the way from where Daniel is, all the way past our day, all the way to the end when Christ comes back and how glorious it is and how simple it is, this, this dream and the interpretation of the dream that Daniel gave. And so, uh, of course, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a dream Nebuchadnezzar had of a statue and the head was gold and Daniel makes the mistake of telling him the truth. I'd say mistake, it's not. But he says to him, you are the head of gold, he says to Nebuchadnezzar back in the middle of the chapter. Well, I think Nebuchadnezzar ceases to hear anything after that. He starts thinking, yeah, absolutely I am. So notice what he does in chapter 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king. This is the next chapter. Now, I don't, I'm, I don't know how many years, months, days, I don't know, but it's not long. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits. So that's pretty high. I'll talk about that in a second. Six cubits wide set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, he makes this God of himself. I'm the God. You're going to be bowing down to it, as we're going to see. But he apparently forgets what he says. I'll be back here. Just look at the previous chapter. Look at verse 47. There's like three verses back, I mean, as far as the way the book goes. Three verses back, he says this to Daniel. This is after Daniel interprets this incredible dream that God gives him. He says to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this to me. So he's all about God, three verses before, and now he's turned himself into a God. Like I said, I, just like a typical male, he, he only hears certain things. And, uh, 
and only the good stuff, right? And so here he goes, making a statue of himself out of solid gold, and uh, it's, a, it's not a little statue. He builds this statue, it says 60 by 6 cubits, uh, which is, uh, translates into linear feet, or 90 by 9. So I don't, know how, I don't know when the last time you built something, but if it's 90 feet tall and only 9 feet wide, you're going to have a hard time standing that thing up. So I don't know if there were guy wires. I don't know, just to give you a relative size, uh, your utility poles out here on the highway are 40 feet. Six feet of it are in the ground, 40 feet above the ground. So this is 90 feet. This is not even half. The utility pole is not even half the height of this thing. So I'm not sure if he had half of it stuck in the ground. I don't know how it works. It obviously was probably a wooden structure uh, covered in gold to represent the, the image of, and I don't know, you know, he, of course he makes it after himself. I'm not sure if he even tried, like, this is the original Photoshop, right? You make an image of yourself and you only make yourself 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. I mean, he's trying to look skinny here. I guess, I guess, I'm not sure. I mean, if you're going to go to all that trouble, you might as well look good. But uh, so, so he makes this image and he's going to require all the leaders of Babylon all of his administrators, anyone who is in any of his government, any kind of power or authority, he's on pain of death, he's going to require them to bow down to this statue. So let's take a look at verse 6. We're, just, we're going to be not reading the whole chapter, just skipping through and filling in the blanks. But whoever, notice he puts the statue up, and then he's going to have them play instruments. By the way, six different kinds of instruments, and it's repeated there a number of times in the chapter. Whoever does not fall down and worship, namely this image, shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So this is, um, you either do what I tell you to do, or you're going to get a pink slip. It said the pink slip is going to be covered with blood, if you will. So it's not just getting fired here that's the problem. They're going to end, he's going to end their life. He's going to throw them into a, a fiery furnace. And so this is a really tough thing. Now, first of all, uh, just, just because Daniel is a prophetic book, and we've already been talking about the prophetic back in chapter 2, and we're going to continue when we get to chapter 7, and then the rest of the book is almost entirely involved with nothing but prophecies of future things, in some cases future things, even to where we sit today. Uh, what I have here, or let's just say we didn't know the rest of the chapter, but tell me in a place in the Bible where I have a worldwide leader who forms an image of himself and forces people to bow down to pray to that image, and if they do not, they will lose their lives. Where do you hear that? Of course, you hear that in Daniel. There's one other place you hear that, which if you read the New Testament, it's all the way in the New Testament book of Revelation. And by the way, what's the number of the guy who makes that image in the New Testament? 666, right? And you've got a statue here that's covered with 60, 60 cubits high, Six cubits wide, praised by six different instruments. Either you say, well, this is a really big coincidence, or you have to say, this is a foreshadowing in the Old Testament of this same event. And I would submit to you, that's what you got going on here. Because we have some miraculous stuff going on here. First of all, a king who decides he's going to kill these Jews, and does he do it? Nah, if you've read the story, he does, he's not effective. These young men refuse to bow down. They go into the fire, but the fire has no effect of them. And then in addition, no one asks this question, why is there only three? Is there not Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Where's, where's Daniel? You've got an entire chapter in a book named after Daniel in which Daniel is not mentioned. He's not a part of the trio. Or it would be, a, you know, it'd be four, a quattro, that's not right. What is that? Quadro, I don't know, you know. <laughs> He's not there. Where is he? So we on the one have to say Daniel is a capitulator. He's bowing down with all the thousands of others. And that only the three friends 
are actually standing up, and I would consider that to be unlikely, especially since God continues to speak to him and continues to write a book of the Bible through him, and because of all the things we've seen already about Daniel, I mean, the guy is not willing to even eat the king's food on pain of death, and so surely when it comes down to a statue of another God, I mean, this is a real simple equation here. I don't bow down to statues. We only bow down to the living God, and so we don't do this. So either on the one hand, Daniel is a capitulator, which I think is unlikely, or the most likely thing, he's just not there. We don't know why. We don't know why. But, but Daniel isn't there, and there's a, there's a reasonable sense for it, and we're going to get to that in just a second, but there's a prophetic sense in that in, in two. So I've got a group that goes through the fire, three of them that aren't burned, and then I have one a part of the group that never goes into the fire. What do you have in the New Testament? You have a tribulation in which a group of people go through, they're Jewish and otherwise, who survive because of God's grace, the tribulation, and you have a group that's taken out beforehand in a thing called the rapture. Could this be... Could this be a foreshadowing of that event? I'll let you decide. That's my opinion, that it is. And if you decide differently, then everyone has the right to be wrong, and I give you that, that privilege. So, no. Now, I'll be dogmatic about stuff that Scripture's not dogmatic about. I'm just putting out there a suggestion. The Bible is definitely deeper than maybe you thought. It's certainly deeper than I ever thought. And so we can consider those things. But th back to the practical here, there is a very practical reason, I believe, why da Daniel's absent in this chapter. Because up until now, chapters 1 and 2, Daniel's been the leader. He's been the guy who decided we're not going to eat this food, and his friends went along with him. He's been the guy who, through whom God interpreted the dream in chapter 2. He's been the guy that went back to his friends when he says, either, either we interpret the dream and tell the king what the dream is, or the king's killing all of us, boys, we're having a prayer meeting tonight. So he's always been the leader. So it may be, there may be a, something in our heads that say these friends are sort of just on the coattails of Daniel. And Daniel is a, a, an incredibly faithful young man, but these other three are sort of B class, if you will. But now we have God setting aside Daniel for an entire chapter, showing us what's really going on in the heart of these young men. They're just like him. He, he's, he's the star, if you will. But these guys are no less quality than he is. So we have a whole chapter in which they're able to stand out as, as being hearts to God and literally laying their lives down for the sake of the things that they believe in. And so theirs is an, it's certainly an amazing story. So, so he says, you're going to bow down to them. And of course, to the statue, of course they don't. They're the only three that don't. And I would suggest to you also, don't, don't misread this. And when I say misread this, because it's, it's very unlikely that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were the only Jewish young men taken into exile and trained. In fact, it says that he took a number of the, leading, the children of the leading men, these young men, took them to Babylon, had them trained in the languages and the culture and, and, and the mathematics and the government and all the stuff so that he could put them in positions of leadership. He did this in every kingdom that he conquered. He didn't just get four out of Jerusalem. He got a bunch maybe a hundred or more. Where are these guys? So we know the story of Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego. Where are the other, where are the other 99? Where, are these, where is their hearts? Well, we don't know how many there were, but I would dare say there were just four. And the reason why we don't know about the rest of them is because there's no story in them. They have no fortitude. Whenever the king said, eat my food, they said, okay. When he ever said, bow down to a statue, they said, okay. There is no story to tell because their story is just like the rest of ours. They, they're, they're yellow. They have no spine. They have no fortitude. They don't stand up for God. They don't know what's right. And so there's no story. 
There's no story. The reason why there's a story for these young men is because they stood and did what was right. And we're here. That's the reason why they're in the Bible, because we're supposed to learn from them and not from the others. So, so they don't bow. And it says in verse 8, for this reason, tattletales come. Certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And here's the charges, verses 12 and 13. There are certain Jews, speaking to the king, whom... You have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. He just did that in the last chapter. So Daniel interprets the dream. He raises Daniel to the position, effectively a prime minister over all of Babylon. We're talking about a 22, three-year-old Jewish boy. Sorry if you're that age. I mean, you're a boy now to me. I thought that was real old when I was that age, but you're not that anymore. Puts him in charge of the whole kingdom. Daniel brings these other friends up saying, listen, they're part of my entourage. They're great guys. You're going to love them. He promotes them to this administration over the city of Babylon itself. And so they're complaining, saying, these guys that you promoted, just in the last chapter, if you're reading the book, over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, that's not their Jewish name. That's a Babylonian name. These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image, namely worship you, that you have set up. The Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that these, then these men were brought before him. These were the kids that he had just promoted. He trusted them. He thought they were going to be awesome. They had never been anything other than awesome in his administration. But now he gives a command that they are not willing to keep. And so he's super upset about it. So he brings them in front of him, and he gives them another chance. He didn't see him apparently, so he couldn't say for, for a fact that this is what happened. So he questions him and says, did you actually do this? He says, as a matter of fact, I'm going to give you another shot. I'm going to have all the instruments played, and we're going to allow you to have a personal time of bowing down in front of this statue. And if you do this, then we'll consider everything that you've done prior to this to be ineffective. You're going to keep your jobs. You're going to keep your heads. You're going to keep your lives. And, and uh, we'll wipe the slate clean, if you will. So he brings them in front of him, gives them a chance, and here's their answer to the proposition. Are they going to keep their jobs? They are not. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. May I suggest to you, that doesn't sa- it sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Now, first of all, if you're going to talk rude to your boss... And your line, boss is in your line, your job is on the line, you should also be having in your hip pocket somewhere else to work because it's going to be your last day. And if your boss also is not talking about just firing you but throwing it in your firing furnace, you, you better have your ducks in a row. You better know that it, it shouldn't be just because you don't like the way he's leading things around here, so I'm just going to get thrown in the fire furnace. Well, that's not what they're doing. Now, then also, I would say this. There's a difficulty in our translations because obviously you're translating out of a very old language called Hebrew into an English language. And most of our literal translations, like I preach from the New American Standard, some of you have King James, New King James, ESV. There's a several of them that are more literal in the sense that they try to stick word for word. Whatever word was in the Hebrew, they translate it into English. And in many cases, like especially the King James, they leave it in the same word order. It'd be a little bit confusing. And this is one of those cases where when it's translated that way, it comes across as rude. These kids were not being rude. All that they're saying, all the Hebrew really says is, we have nothing to say for ourselves. Effectively, we're guilty as charged. No, no, what do you plead? And they say, guilty, we have nothing to say. What these guys says is exactly what happened. You didn't see us not bow down, but we did not. And in fact, as, as we'll keep reading here, we will not. Verse 17. 
And if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the, fire, from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Notice, either way, whether we live or die, we will be delivered from you. Now, what an attitude. That's, that's awesome. So whether we live and are delivered, we're delivered. Whether we die and go to heaven, we're delivered either way. Listen, let, let me just say this to you very carefully. You got to die anyway. You got to die anyway. You only got one life to live. May I suggest to you that you live it in such a way, because you're going to have to, whatever decisions you make in this life, you're going to live with forever. That's, that's why life is so important. You are going to live with the decisions you make here forever. Heaven's not going to be a place of oblivion where God wipes the slate clean. You don't remember anything that you did. I don't think it's, at least not initially. Initially, you're going to see everything. Good, bad, fun, crazy, whatever. Make good decisions because you're going to get to live for, with them forever. He says, listen, we don't care how God delivers us, whether it's in this life or the next life. Nonetheless, you need to know this king, he says. Uh, but even if he does not, God's got the complete prerogative on that. Notice they're not setting God up for a certain things. God, if God is faithful, he has to deliver us from this fire. They don't say that. They just say God's sovereign. God makes his own decisions. We're here to serve God. If, if, if killing us is service to God, so be it. If living is service to God, so be it. What an incredible example these young men are. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar completely loses it after this, has the fire heated up seven times worse, uh, has them thrown in. Of course, if you read the rest of the story, they're delivered. In fact, they're not only delivered by God, they're delivered by the presence of God or the presence of his angel, whichever one you would like to argue, because it winds up being four people in the fire, and the fourth one's not Daniel. It's one, as Nebuchadnezzar says, one like a son of the gods, he says. Looks like some kind of supernatural creature, whatever it is, walking around inside this fire, calls them to come out. They come out, not only are they not singed anywhere, they don't even smell like smoke. I don't know if you ever stood downwind at a campfire, even for a second. That's what you smell like. These guys have been in the campfire, and they have nothing singed on them. They've thrown in with all of their cloaks, and nothing, nothing, nothing's been singed. Not a hair on their head has changed. And so, of course, it's this amazing thing and testimony to God, the faithfulness of these young men. So I believe there are at least two major points that we need to take away from this incredible story. And I've already said them, and they're titled the sermon there in the bulletin. Fortitude and faith. Faith and fortitude. Fortitude. I mean, you talk about some young men with fortitude. Talk about young men with conviction. Talk about young men who had a line in the sand that they would not cross, no matter what, no matter what the pressure was in their lives, they were going to do the right thing. They're given three opportunities, by the way, to really foul up their lives. Chapter one, eat the king's food that's been sacrificed to idols. They said, no way. Chapter two, when the king starts lopping off heads because people can't interpret his dream, they, they don't look for another place to live. They stand and face it. Chapter 3, they're given an opportunity to bow down and keep their jobs and keep their money and keep their pensions and keep their retirement and keep their yacht and their hunting lease and all the other stuff that matter. They could have done that. But instead, they're going to lay it all down, especially their lives, for the sake of doing one thing, and that's being obedient to God. Talk about young men of conviction. It begs the question, do we have conviction? That's what the story is all about. If you can't put yourself in this story, you're really missing it. This is not, a, not for them. They never read the book of Daniel. It was written down for you and for me. We've got to put ourselves in the position of these young men. What would I have done? That's a question you need to ask. It's 
question you need to ask. It's easy to, and by the way, it's an easy question because they're living it and we get to live it vicariously through them. Easier to learn through them than through your own, own things, is it not? So learn, take your opportunity. Our attitudes and behaviors and decisions are determined by two things in our lives, external pressure and internal principles. And they're mutually exclusive. If I live by external pressures, then it won't matter what my internal convictions are because I don't really hold them anyway. However the wind's blowing doctrinally, however the wind's blowing socially, however the wind's blowing politically, that's the way I go because I really don't have any fortitude. Is that you? Certainly have something to learn here. On the other hand, if my positions do not change with the social and political climate, I'm a person of conviction. And let me just say this to you. If the world ever needed men and women of conviction, it is today. People who don't just say, I believe such and such, but actually when push comes to shove, that's the way they act. That's the way they live. That's the way they respond. That's the way they treat others. It doesn't matter what other people are doing. Like I said, the waves can come, the wind can blow, but I'm doing this. That's the way I'm going to live. You don't like me, too bad, but I would prefer to be liked by God than by you. I'd great to be both, but I can't. Daniel's friends were men of conviction because they would not give in no matter what the external pressure. It's so important, like I said, that we put ourselves in the position of these young men. So important that we understand. Uh, uh, there was, uh, and by the way, they get promoted. But at the end, they get promoted. They get demoted first, of course, into the fire. And they get promoted at the end. I read a story of a young man by the name of Michael. And Michael uh, had a secular job and uh, he made it very clear, uh, and the boss guaranteed him that he would never have to work on Sundays. He says, because Sundays, Sunday morning is church for me. He says, I'm just, it's just a commitment I have, and I'm going to keep that commitment. And the boss says, no big deal. The boss was a secular guy, not a Christian or anything. And then uh, push came to shove. Something happened a couple years later, and the boss needed every, all hands on deck on a Sunday morning because they had to get so, certain things done. And he went to him and said, sir, um, I told you I can't do that. I'm, I've committed to be in church. I'm committed to be, well, I'm, I have responsibilities at church. It's not just me attending church. I have ministries and things that I have to do. And, and I cannot be here. He says, you'll do it with a pink slip. You're not here tomorrow. You're not, you're not here on Sunday. You're going to be fired. He says, well, then I'm fired. He said, well, then clean out your desk. And that was it. And so this young man lost his livelihood. He's got a wife. He's got kids. I mean, what does he do? It's his convictions. Two weeks later, this same boss is in a conversation with his banker and the bankers complained about to him that he can't find uh, enough men and women faithful, trustworthy enough to, to handle certain privileged things within the bank concerning money. And the boss immediately had this idea. He says, I know a guy that does. He says, who? He says, it's a guy I fired two weeks ago. He says, so why? You fired him. Why would I hire him? He says, because I can guarantee you a person who's willing to lose their job over convictions about certain things is a guy you can trust with your money. Gave him a job. Better than the job the other boss gave him. So these guys eventually were promoted because they stood up for God. But listen, they were not counting on that. They were just counting whether God promotes me in this life or in the next life. Either way, because God's in charge, I'm promoted. My job is to honor him. That's fortitude. That's conviction. A guy by the name of Stuttered Kennedy was a pastor in England prior to World War II, World War I, I'm sorry, and then was drafted into the army at the beginning of World War I and went into... Uh, uh, serve in the trenches with his fellow soldiers as a chaplain in World War I. He writes this, this letter back to his young son, his wife and his young son. And this is what he says to his son. I think it's incredible. He says, the first prayer I want you to pray for me, son, is not God keep daddy safe. 
says, so that's not the first prayer I want you to pray. He says, the first prayer I want you to pray is this. God, make daddy brave. And if daddy has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Then he goes on to say this. Listen. He says, because son, life and death don't matter as much as right and wrong. How incredibly important that message is. Life and death don't matter near as much as right and wrong. You're going to die anyway, whether now or later, but you're going to live forever with your decisions. Life and death don't matter near as much as right and wrong, son. A daddy dead, he says, is daddy still. But daddy dishonored before God is something awful. What an incredible thing. Our world needs people who will draw their convictions from their time in prayer before God and their time listening to God and who are not afraid of any pressure from the outside. No fears changes. So our first lesson we learn from these young men is, of course, a lesson of fortitude. And what an amazing lesson it is. The second lesson we learn is, is a lesson of faith. Of course, these things go together. But there's such an incredible, we, we really, really need a lesson on what faith is because so much is under the heading of faith. There's a whole lot of knuckleheads and weirdness stuff going out there and a lot of false religion that's under the heading of faith. And I say that to say there's a lot, everybody thinks, well, any faith is good. No, it's not. Faith, faith for the sake of faith is worthless. Faith is only as value as that which you have faith in. Faith, it's the only place value comes from. Here, here's an example of faith that's not good. In their book called We Let Our Son Die, what a title. We Let Our Son Die, Larry and Lucy Percy recount the tragic story of a misguided faith. Watching televangelists, I told you to turn them people off and quit sending your money to them. They're teaching false doctrine. Nowhere does it say that God will prosper you financially every single time or God will make you healthy every single time. So God will prosper you and make you financially wealthy and yet Jesus dies at 33 and when they divide everything that he has, he only has an inner garment and an outer garment to his name. No house to live in. But somehow you're the exception to the Son of God, I guess, according to these crazy televangelists. I just saw one on somewhere, one of your Facebook posts, a guy's asking for 56 or $96 million to buy a jet because he believes that that's what God wants him to do. So... I'm not asking. I'm just asking for an offshore boat. I'm not asking for stuff like that. I mean, please, that guy just embarrasses the whole, you know, just a, hundred thousand, just a simple $100,000 to go offshore. Just asking for free fishing. That's all I'm asking. <laughs> I would hate to be him. These people following that kind of teaching believe that God was going to heal their son. Their, God, their son was early onset type 1 diabetes. Believed that if they had faith in God, again, listen to these knuckleheads on television. Believed if they had faith in God that they would not have to administer insulin to their son. Of course, you can imagine what happened. You got type 1 diabetes, you don't take insulin, what happens? You start crashing. That's what happened to him. Went into a coma, passed away, refused to hold, refused to hold a funeral. They refused to hold a funeral because they believed instead of holding a funeral, you know what they held? They held a resurrection service. Three hours waiting for God to resurrect him. Guess what happened? Nothing. The kid was dead. They refused to even acknowledge his death for a full year until they were arrested for all the right reasons and put in jail for child abuse because they believed sometime that God was going to resurrect their son because they believed that they let up with their faith at all that that was a mistake. And what their, the mistake was was their faith. Let me just say this to you. Faith is not faith unless it's biblical. It's not. 
Faith is not faith unless it is what God says it ought to be. And here's one of the things that it's not. Faith is not faith in faith alone. Faith, faith is the, the effectiveness of our faith is not how strongly we are convinced ourselves of any particular outcome. I believe it's going to go this way, and that's what real faith is. Not necessarily. Your son comes to you and says, because you're a good dad, I believe that you're going to buy me a new car. And it's going to be red, and it's going to have all this stereo system. And not only that, Dad, because you're a good God, I believe you're going to deliver it next Friday. Next Friday comes, what's going to happen? If, if it was on my list because he came to me that way, that's the reason why it went off the list right there. You're going to talk to me like that? Over. Done. I wanted to bless you, but I can't. Because you think somehow, I mean, who's the dad here? Who's in charge? He thinks you're in charge of my money? You're not. I give you what I want to give, right? What makes you think that when you present your list to God on Sunday morning or whenever you pray to him, hopefully every day, that that is a list of to-do lists for God? It's not a list of orders for him. That's not what prayer is. Yes, does God want you to present your request to him? That's obvious in the scriptures. But every end of the bottom of the bottom of the list always ought to be, nevertheless, not as I will. You're the dad. But as you will. You're the one in church. I serve you. You don't serve me. I, you tell me what to do. I don't tell you what to do. Prayer is not a process in which you tell God what his, what his checklist is going to be today. Really, you don't really think that, do you? Likewise, biblical faith is not faith in faith itself. It's not your ability to convince yourself of any particular outcome. Instead, it's sitting down and saying, whatever God has for me, because he's a good God and he is. He doesn't have to do another thing good for you. He still remains good. Because God is a good God, I'm going to trust him with outcome. Let, let's, let's put ourselves in the position of these three young men, which, as I said, we desperately need to do. These three young men could have believed with all their hearts that Nebuchadnezzar nor any of his officials would have, seen, would have not seen them when they didn't bow down. We're just believing that when we don't bow down, that no one's going to see us, that they're all going to be blind. Is that what happened? Well, maybe, maybe they were praying that. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying that. But to say that God has to stick to that makes you God and him your servant. That is not faith, y'all. That is messed up. We can ask God that, but when God doesn't come through, what do we say? He's the Lord. He knows what he's doing. He's got something better planned. So let's say they said, well, then, 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 then we, they would be unable to throw us into the fire because the fire, every time they blow us, throw us in there, God, the breath of God is going to blow out all the flames. Now, could have God blown out the flames? Certainly, he could do that. God can do anything. You can pray and ask God to do that. But does God have to do that in order to be good? He does not. What actually happened? They got saw. They got thrown in. The fire was just as hot. Nevertheless, God delivered in a way that they could have never imagined. So you're giving God a checklist of stuff that he's supposed to do, and God's got something on his list that says, I got something bigger than all this stuff for you, and you're going to skip that, so that you're going to tell God to keep your list. You're going to miss out on who God really is. That is not faith. That is, like I said, telling God what to do. And I would suggest to you that he's not going to respond real well to that. Just not. Not any more than I would as a father. You're telling me what to do if you're my son. Let's, let's take a brief look, by the way, at, at the faithful. Here's the list of the faithful from the New Testament. This is a list from the Old Testament of those who, in the things that they did because they believed God. And part of this list, I don't put it on there, but part of the list is these three guys being delivered from the fire. Here's all the things that God did on behalf of people who trusted him. 
This is an awesome list. By the way, this is the part of the list I always want to be a part of. Here's the reason why. By faith, they conquered kingdoms. I want to do that. They perform acts of righteousness, obtain promises, shut the mouths of lions, quench the power of the fire, escape the edge of the sword. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreigner armies to flight. Now, the, the televangelist part of me wants to tell you that every time you pray, this is how it's going to turn out. But the biblical part of me will tell you that it's really up to God. Does it turn out this way? Clearly it does. Does it turn out every time this way? Clearly it does not. Notice where we are in the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. A couple of verses later, same faith, same trust, same God who's being good to the same kind of people. He's good whether he gives you what you want or whether he gives you what you don't want. He's still being good. And others, notice, trusting God experienced Mockings and scourgings, was that on your list today? God, I pray that I'd be scourged and mocked for your name. Not on mine. Yes, also chains and imprisonment, it's not on mine. Stoned, sawn in two, crying out loud. Tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went around in sheepskin and goatskins and being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men, of course, whom the world was not worthy of because they treated God's, God's faithful this way. They're being faithful to God. Yet nevertheless, do you think they were praying this happened to them? No, but God allowed it to happen to them. Why? Because God's sovereign. He can do that. He's still being good to them. Just like, just like the friends say, what do they say here? God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not bound down. God, whether he delivers in this life, delivers in that life, his deliverance nonetheless, God's still good. We're going to trust him. We're going to let him be God, and we're not going to be God in his place. So they're not, we're not necessarily faith in God and not in any particular outcome. That's what real faith is. Then a second thing, biblical faith is not. Biblical faith is not trust in our ability to read God's will. Now, this is one I fall trapped to more often than the other one. I'd like to say I was scot-free on the other one, and I'm not. But this one, I find myself doing this. Because, you know, I'm a pastor, and my name's out on the sign, and I have a doctorate degree and all that kind of stuff. So I, of course, know what God's will is ahead of, you know. <laughs> no. I wished people come to me and ask me that kind of question. Pastor, tell me what I ought to do. And I'd say, whoo, boy, I wished I could. I have a hard time running my own life. Here's, here's one I fall victim to. Biblical faith, listen, is not trust in our ability to read God's will. An example a pastor gives, not me. But had a lady in his prayer meeting stood up, and she was praising God because she believed that God was going to heal her dog. Does God heal dogs? I believe he does. I think he cares about everything. Can, can God heal a dog if I pray for my dog that he be healed? I mean, absolutely. There's nothing God cannot do. Will God do it every time? I watch it. God's going to do what God's going to do. And our job is to accept it. But this girl, this lady was convinced that she knew what God's will was before he ever did anything. Because she had read some weeks before in Psalms where it says that God heals all your diseases. And somehow she interpreted that to, to apply to her sick dog a couple of weeks later. Now, could she be right? She could be. God could be speaking to her. How are we going to know if she's right? Where's Fifi a week from now? <laughs> Fifi didn't make it. So, again, this pastor says this woman threw an absolute conniption fit because God had failed her. God had not failed her. God is not, not obligated to keep your interpretation of his will. Is that okay? It needs to be okay. Because he's God and you're not. He's the father, and you're the child, and you need to let him be that. Biblical faith is faith in God alone, not in our abilities either to believe what we're 
praying for or to figure out what God's will is. It is simple, simply trusting the truth that God is God and that we trust him. Again, verse 18, these young men are amazing. But even if he does not save us, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, God doesn't owe us any particular outcome. We owe everything to him. Now that is the attitude we had to have. Why were they doing this? Because... We owe everything to our God. And he can do whatever. We're his servants. And we would love it if the fire went out or if you didn't see us. But nonetheless, you need to know that because we're his servants, we're here to serve him. And whatever his will is, then that is his will. He's going to be good no matter what. He's going to work out all things together for good because that is who he is. And we are trusting him. What an incredible testimony. Biblical faith is not trust in our belief or what we want to happen. Or our ability to read God's will, it is trust in him alone, that he is good, and that he's working all things together for good. That's what it is. Faith and fortitude. What a credible story this is. Pray with me, please. God, I thank you that what, what amazing young men these were. And what a privilege we have to be able to read their story, to see how they stood strong, to see... Uh, the conviction that they had. Lord, I pray that we would be people of fortitude who have, who have a line in the sand. Not over every last tiny little issue, but certainly over the major issues. We have a line in the sand that says, I, I can't do that. I can't go there. I can't be that. Because it misrepresents who I really am, and it dishonors to whom I really belong. God, I pray that you would give us fortitude especially in a day in which so many people are vacillating. God, we would stand, not because we're able, but because you enable us. And then also, God, we pray for faith, not faith in ourselves, not faith in what we, any particular outcome, not faith in our ability to interpret what you're doing in any particular thing, but instead, God, just simply saying, we believe you that you're good. And it doesn't have to go, God, the way we want it to, or the way we said we wanted it to go, for it to be good. We believe that you're good and that you're working all things together for good. God, I pray that these lessons would be instilled in us. I pray, God, that they would fortify against us uh, all the, the false teachings and ideas and all the things that are floating around out there. Thank you so much, God, for the opportunity we've had to spend together over your word. You still in us. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.